A hit to the Voting Rights Act today. A federal appeals court ruled against a key tool that's used to enforce one of the nation's landmark civil rights laws. The decision could set up another showdown in the U.S. Supreme Court. Our story is coming up on this Monday, November 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, people in Plains, Georgia are remembering the former First Lady, Rosalind Carter. She leaves behind a legacy of advocating for mental health and for caregivers. Homeless shelters for adults in Massachusetts are overflowing. Some people who cannot get a proper bed in a shelter are given a chair for the night instead. I couldn't sleep in the chair, so like other people, it gets uncomfortable, but they don't have enough mattresses or blankets, so I was literally sleeping on the floor. Advocates are sounding the alarm. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Government officials from several countries, as well as multiple media reports, indicate Israel and Hamas are close to a deal exchanging women and children held by both sides. But as NPR's Greg Myrie tells us, the reports also caution that nothing has been finalized. For days, a swirl of government statements and media accounts suggest a deal could be coming soon. They say it's likely to involve freeing 50 to 100 women and children on each side. These would be hostages seized by Hamas and prisoners jailed by Israel. An agreement is also expected to include a pause in the fighting for several days. The Prime Minister of Qatar, which is serving as a mediator, says only, quote, minor obstacles remain. But Israel's leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, cautions that there's no deal at present, and Hamas is not making any announcements either. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. More than 700 employees at OpenAI are threatening to quit following a shakeup in leadership. They're demanding the board resign after CEO Sam Altman was ousted and fellow executive Greg Brockman walked out in protest. Both have been picked up by Microsoft. Here's NPR's Derek Kerr. The move comes after OpenAI's board fired company CEO Sam Altman last week. More than two-thirds of the company's employees have written a letter saying Altman needs to be reinstated, and the whole board has to go. Otherwise, they'll walk. They say the board's firing of Altman jeopardized the mission of the company. OpenAI is the leader of the generative AI field. It makes the popular ChatGPT program. Allman has been the face of this burgeoning technology. Under his leadership, the company went from a nonprofit research lab to a lucrative corporation. Dara Kerr, NPR News. A moment of levity today at the White House, thanks to the annual turkey pardon. I hereby pardon Liberty Ann Bell. The president got to save the lives of two 42-pound birds on his birthday. Biden's age getting a lot more attention as he seeks re-election. But as NPR's Domenico Montanero reports, at today's event, the president seemed to take age and stride. On his 81st birthday, Biden spared a pair of birds from Minnesota named Liberty and Bell on the South Lawn on this crisp fall day in Washington. And he poked a little fun at himself in the process. This is the 76th anniversary of this event. And I want you to know I wasn't there in the first one. While the turkey lobby first gave presidents turkeys in 1947, those birds were meant to be eaten. Pardoning them didn't officially start until decades later. Biden's age has become a problem for his re-election campaign, but he hopes keeping it light and reminding Americans what they have to be thankful for can keep him from running afoul of voters. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. 
It's NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Police are forming a unit to fight hate crimes. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports this comes amid a significant uptick in hate speech and hate crimes in Massachusetts. State data show reports of hate crimes were up 8% last year. That's the highest level since 2002. The state police are forming a new hate crimes awareness and response team to better respond to hate speech and violence. Governor Maura Healy says her administration is also giving out half a million dollars in grants for programming in schools. My focus right now is on addressing the now and what is, and what is the most unfortunate escalation that we have seen of hate incidents and conduct in this state and around this country. The Anti-Defamation League says reports of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are rising amidst the Israel-Hamas war. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Homeless shelters for adults in Massachusetts are on the brink of a crisis. Advocates say there are more people who need beds in Boston shelters than there are beds, 20 percent more. And that's before the coldest weather even hits. Jerry Thomas of the Boston Public Health Commission says the agency's mission is to take care of everyone who comes to its two shelters. But that is tough. If someone shows up, we do not turn them away. But we also don't want, you know, this town's police dropping people off here or there, which does happen because those towns aren't taking, this is a very nice way to put it, not really taking care of their people. Homeless advocates say there's also been a sharp rise around the state in people sleeping outside. The Veterans Affairs Boston health care system has a new deputy executive director. Leslie Pearson will be responsible for health care for about 60,000 veterans in greater Boston and throughout New England. Most recently, Pearson was the assistant director at the VA in Providence. 38 degrees now. Temperatures are on the way down. Should make it to the mid-20s overnight tonight. Clear skies. Tomorrow, partly cloudy temperatures in the low 40s. Wednesday could have rain driven by some high winds. May make it to the low 50s. Looks like we should have some sunshine coming our way on Thanksgiving Thursday. It's 4.07. WBUR supporters include FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's one thing to have laws and another to enforce them. Today, a federal appeals court struck down a key path for enforcing the Voting Rights Act. The dispute has to do with who has the right to sue in order to enforce protections in that landmark law. In the end, this lawsuit could end up making it harder to fight racial discrimination in voting. NPR's Hansi Wong has been tracking this case. Hi. Hi, Juana. Okay, get us up to speed here. In the past, how has the Voting Rights Act been enforced? Well, there's been two ways of enforcing protections for people of color under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Either the Justice Department can sue on behalf of the federal government or private individuals and groups who do not represent the government can sue. Okay, and is one way more common than the other way? Yes, the majority of cases are brought by individuals and groups, not the Justice Department. And that's what happened in this redistricting lawsuit out of Arkansas that this appeals court panel ruled on today. Groups representing black voters in Arkansas sued. They challenged Arkansas state legislative map and argued it was drawn in a way that dilutes the collective voting power of black voters in the state. And a lower court judge said these groups have a strong case, but the judge ultimately threw out the case because the judge said these groups do not have a right to sue. And why is that? Why did the judge say that? 
Well, this judge is U.S. District Judge Lee Rudofsky was appointed by former President Donald Trump. And Rudofsky said the actual words of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act do not explicitly say that private individuals can bring lawsuits and that only the head of the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney General, who's named in the law, can sue. And, you know, what's remarkable is that until this case, no judges have used this argument to dismiss voting rights cases. And back in 1982, when Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, there were reports from House and Senate committees that said private individuals have the right to sue. And legal scholars I've talked to say this has never been a real question before. Okay, help us understand the implications here. How could all of this make it harder to fight racial discrimination in voting? If private individuals and groups are not allowed to sue, that means it'll be up to only the Justice Department to enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and a change in presidential administration could change the level of priority for these types of cases. And, you know, I think we have to remember that Section 2 is one of the few remaining sections of the Voting Rights Act that have survived after a decade of Supreme Court rulings that have weakened other key parts of this landmark law. That's right. And this ruling out today, it's from a federal appeals court. But I would have to imagine this will not be the final word on this question, right? It likely won't be. I'm watching to see if attorneys ask the full Eighth Circuit, uh, all the judges to review today's ruling. And, you know, of course, it's likely that whatever the full Eighth Circuit rules on gets kicked up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, it's really important to, I think, to, to also point out that one particular Supreme Court justice a couple years ago mentioned this issue in a paragraph that was tacked onto a major ruling. This is Justice Neil Gorsuch. And many watchers saw it as a signal that Gorsuch is interested in having the Supreme Court weigh in on this issue. NPR's Hansi Luang, thank you. You're very welcome, Juana. Argentina has one of the highest inflation rates in the world, and expectations are high among Argentinians that their new president-elect will bring rates down. Javier Javier Millet won yesterday's presidential election, beating the current ruling party's candidate by 11 points. He's an ultra-conservative economist who promises that libertarian principles will solve the country's dire economic state. He's vowed to replace the country's currency with the U.S. dollar and slash all state spending. But as NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, it is unclear when and if he can make such radical changes. Javier Millet got little rest after celebrating his landslide victory last night. Early this morning, he was on local radio. Los tres derechos no negociables bajo ningún punto de vista es el derecho a la vida, la libertad y a la propiedad. The three rights that are under no circumstances negotiable are the right to life, liberty, and private property, told the local host. To say Millet's meteoric political rise has shocked Argentina is an understatement. Just a few years ago, the 53-year-old conservative economist with a messy mop of hair and long sideburns wasn't even in politics. He was better known as a TV pundit whose expletive laced rants grabbed headlines and ratings. Sorpresivo. Hubo momentos que lo esperaba y a veces no, pero bien, ahora contento. It is surprising, says Leon Lemos, who was walking downtown on his way to work where he manages a bar. He says at one point he didn't think it could happen, but he's so glad Millet, who's not part of Argentina's establishment, won. Political forces left and right in Argentina have failed to fix the economy, which has spent more years in recession lately than not. Que el resto de los políticos no es tan claro y que te dice más o menos qué va a hacer con las cosas, pero él no. Other politicians aren't clear about what they're going to do, but Lemos says Millet is. 
first up, replacing the Argentine peso with the dollar. And Millet says he'll get rid of the central bank, the main driver of inflation, according to him, because of its indiscriminate printing of money. It's unclear, though, whether Millet can do both. As the metal gates go up and doors open to downtown businesses this morning, dozens of informal dollar changers shout to passersby. Cambio, cambio. Cambio, cambio. This black market exchange is a good indicator of the state of Argentina's economy. Today, though, is a national holiday, and the exchange rate of last Friday is still in effect, about 1,000 pesos for one U.S. dollar. A year ago, it was less than 300. Dollarizing the economy won't be easy. Necesitaría una, una flexibilidad que mi ley no tiene. Marcos Novaro, a professor at the University of Buenos Aires, says politically Malay will need congressional support to ditch the peso. He'll need to compromise. His upstart far-right party, though, has few seats in Congress, and Navarro says flexibility isn't Malay's strong suit. Si él no se modera, yo creo que va a fracasar y probablemente tengamos en algún momento una crisis institucional seria. If he doesn't temper his plans a bit, I think he will fail and we will find ourselves in a very serious crisis, says Novaro. Beside politics, economists warn dollarization isn't easy, especially since Argentina doesn't have a large reserve of foreign currency to buy up people's savings in pesos. At last night's victory party in downtown Buenos Aires, Millet supporters stretch for blocks. 23-year-old Joanna Belen traveled more than two hours to come celebrate. She said she's been thinking of leaving Argentina since making a living here is too hard. She said now she's staying put and is much more hopeful, with Millet taking over the presidency. He assumes power on December 10th. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Buenos Aires. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, family food and holidays. But really, I'm talking about the moment NPR launches our annual Books We Love guide. Whether you are adding to your own to-be-read stack or looking for gifts to give, we have more than 350 book recommendations. You can view them all online starting today. And to guide us through this massive pile, NPR's Andrew Limbong is here. He's part of our culture team and host of the NPR Book of the Day podcast. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Ari. This is so much more than a top 10 list, but it's not exactly an exhaustive list. So <laughs> what is it? Yeah, it's just, you know, to put it bluntly, it's a collection of all our favorite reads. You know, early in the autumn, we send out a call out to all of our reporters and critics and stuff like that. And we just compile this massive list of all of their different tastes and all of their, you know, best reads. And, and, and what it is, it's like a democratic approach to the best of list. You know, like you said, it's 350 books. Uh, that's a massive list. We've got these filters to help you winnow it down. And I think it's a pretty good guarantee that you'll find the right book for either you or your loved one. It's great because it's not just capital I important books. There's children's books, there's cookbooks, there's romance yeah. and science fiction. Like, tell us how these filters work. All right. And so let's see. Like, for me personally, let's just do a, a live demo here. I like um, seriously great writing. Uh, I like that tag because it's one where the authors really like flex their chops and stuff like that. Um, another popular tag is uh, staff picks. So we got those two going together. 
Um, and then let's do uh, for history lovers. And so, you know, with that, we get a couple different options. Um, one looks like a nonfiction book called There Will Be Fire by Rory Carroll, uh, which is about the attempts to assassinate Margaret Thatcher during the Troubles. Um, but another is actually um, Justin Torres's Blackouts. Which oh, you wrote yes, my guy, right? pick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he just won the uh, National Book Award for fiction. So, yeah, totally. shout out to Justin Torres. Yes, yeah. it was a book that I wanted to read again as soon as I finished reading it the first time. Uh-huh. Okay, so when you look over this full list, are there any major trends that jumped out to you? Yeah, there's a really interesting, there's some really interesting books uh, looking at the culture that we consume and really like poking at some questions, including like the one about like representation. Um, So there's a book called Broadway Bodies by Ryan Donovan, which is an examination of, you know, literally the types of body shapes and sizes and abilities that get cast in theater. Um, the other one I want to shout out is uh, was recommended by Pop Culture Happy Hour co-host Glenn Weldon. It's called uh, Hi Honey, I'm Homo by Matt Baum. And it uses like the TV sitcom to examine current day uh, queer politics and history. Hmm. What about books on the kids list? Yeah, there's two I want to shout out here. Uh, one being Big by Vashti Harrison. Uh, it's this beautifully illustrated book about size and acceptance. Um, and there's another really fun one titled uh, Mexi Kid. It's a graphic novel by Pedro Martin. Um, it's about a Mexican-American boy who goes on like this family road trip to Mexico to pick up his grandfather. And, you, you know, as adults, we can point to it being like, oh, it's a tender look at family and immigration and roots and all that. But, you know, there's enough like potty humor <laughs> for, for, for kids to really get into it. That's NPR's Andrew Limbong. Just scratching the surface of books we love, you can explore the whole list at NPR.org. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Ari. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, a New York City woman reported her son missing in 1995, but it took years to learn his fate. To bury my son in a place as though he had no one. He was somebody's child. The story of a missing persons case that fell through the cracks coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. A short week on Wall Street began with an upswing. The Dow rose nearly six-tenths of a percent. S&P pulled in about three-quarters of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained more than one-and-a-tenth percent. Amazon is cutting hundreds of jobs from its Alexa team, which has offices in the Boston area. The company says it's cutting roles from its voice-activated assistant division. According to Amazon's website, employees at its Cambridge office work on Alexa. It's not clear, though, how many jobs there might be affected. Amazon told employees last week it's focusing more resources on generative artificial intelligence. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event now through January 2nd. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, 
so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. It's going to be cold tonight, down in the low 20s. Tomorrow, clouds move in as the day goes on, about 40 degrees for a high. Wednesday, lots of rain. Thursday, thankfully, some sunshine. This is WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. This series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We've been hearing for months about the crisis in Massachusetts' shelter system for families who are homeless. Thousands of families are staying in hotels and motels the state's using as extra shelter space. Those who couldn't get a room are on a wait list. But shelters that serve individual adults are also on the brink of crisis. They're running out of space, and people who operate them are sounding the alarm about the upcoming winter. WBR's Lynn Jolliker has been looking into this. What is, Lynn, the situation at the adult emergency shelters right now? Well, these shelters typically do fill up in the fall as winter approaches, but this year it happened earlier than normal and at much larger numbers than is typical, according to advocates. They say, for example, Boston shelters are 20 percent over capacity, and they have been for a while now this fall. And they say this is the worst they've seen the situation leading into the winter for years, maybe even decades. So they've written a letter to Governor Healy asking for the state to set up some large overflow shelter sites, for example, at military installations and places like that, sites that can serve all ages, from young adults to older adults to families. But these are all individuals as opposed to the family shelters that we've been talking about. Yes. The family shelter system really is a system. It's overseen by the state. But adult shelters are run by nonprofits, sometimes a public agency. They receive state funding, but they are not overseen by the state. So you visited some of the adult shelters recently. What did you see? Yes, I went to Pine Street Inn in Boston last week. I went to the men's shelter. It was dinner time. There were a few dozen men eating in the shelter's dining room. And then down the hall, dozens of men were gathered talking and playing cards in a big room. It was packed and really busy. Here's what it sounded like. Hey, somebody just walked away with my coat, right? And that space would, over the course of the next few hours, get converted into overflow shelter space for the night. When I was there, there were cots and mats lined up along the wall. I spoke with the president and executive director of Pine Street Inn, Lindia Downey, and she told me they've also been opening the dining room as a warming center overnight. And Downey said she has one big question about the shelter's capacity that's eating away at her as winter approaches. Are we going to have enough to meet the demand? We're worried about it. You know, we normally are not having putting these beds up or opening our warming center, you know, sometimes it's even been into December. The fact that we, you know, in October had to start bringing these beds up, it means we will have to add more capacity as the weather gets colder. And I got some data from Pine Street Inn that show the population of the shelter every night this year in October and last year. And each night this year, there were 75 to 100 more men in the shelter than last October and about 10 more women. 
And were you able to speak to any of those guests at the Pine Street Inn? Yes, one of them I spoke to is Charles Christian. He's 38 years old, he grew up in Haverhill, and he worked for the last few years as a machine operator in Central Mass. He says he had never been homeless until things fell apart for him financially earlier this year. Well, I lost my job, and I was paying 1100 for rent plus my utilities, and you know, and then I had credit cards, and I had my car payments, so it kind of got like, you know, backed up, and it got overwhelming. Christian says when this all happened, he Googled homeless shelters and found Pine Street Inn and called them about a month ago. I asked if he was told he could get a bed. Well, it was more like we have a warming center and you could sleep in a chair. I couldn't sleep in the chair, so like other people, it gets uncomfortable, but they don't have enough mattresses or blankets, so I was literally sleeping on the floor. And what about now? Um, I'm, in, I'm in a dorm right now. I'm in a bed. God willing, God, thank, thank you, you know. Is this sharp rise in adult homelessness being driven by the influx of migrants to the state, such as the case with the, the family homelessness crisis? Partly. Uh, I did speak to shelter providers over the course of the last few months, and they said they were seeing more migrants starting to come in. But the numbers really didn't tick up until about September. And some of them are saying that maybe because families were starting to split up because the family shelters were filling up. But in addition to that, social service agencies and government officials say the severe shortage of affordable housing, high rents, and the end of pandemic-era support programs like eviction moratoriums and stimulus checks have contributed to this rise in homelessness. Are there other signs of an overall increase in homelessness among individual adults? Yes, actually, more people staying on the streets, unsheltered. The Massachusetts Housing and Shelter Alliance is an advocacy and policy organization, and they say encampments are appearing or growing even in communities that haven't experienced much unsheltered homelessness before. That's happening from small cities on the North Shore to small towns in Worcester County. John Yaswinski is the president and CEO of Father Bills and Mainspring. That's a shelter and permanent supportive housing organization on the South Shore. I met Yaswinski at the organization's new Quincy shelter and housing facility. That place is overflowing. And this is happening as they're trying to bring more people indoors. What we've seen is a 40% increase of unsheltered homeless people sleeping outside in our region in Quincy, Weymouth, Brockton, Plymouth, Wareham. That's the number we're worried about, whereas we're already in overflow, seeing people that we don't have enough beds, people are sleeping on the floor. What happens as we progress where we don't want to turn anybody away? You mentioned that advocates are calling on the state to do something soon. How's the state responding? Well, the state's executive office of housing and livable communities tells me that just over 600 additional beds for winter are either already online or will be coming online in the next several weeks. That typically does happen to some degree, that uh, cities or shelters or churches bring on extra beds for winter, and the state does provide some funding to help with that. The governor's office and the Office of Housing did not answer my questions yet as to whether the state will bring on any large overflow shelter sites, such as at a military base, to help all populations. WBR's Lynn Jolliker, thanks so much. You're welcome, Lisa. World Health Organization says 28 premature babies have been evacuated to Egypt from Gaza. They had survived for days outside incubators in Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza when the hospital was without power and then besieged by Israeli troops. Israel says Hamas uses the hospital for cover. NPR's producer in Gaza, 
Anna Spaba met the mother of two of those babies as she waited by an ambulance to leave Gaza with her daughters. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports. Noor al-Banna's twin daughters, Lean and Bayan, were born prematurely three days before the Israeli offensive on Gaza began. They were transferred without her to Gaza's biggest hospital, Al-Shifa, and Banna tells NPR producer Anas Baba when the airstrikes began, she wasn't able to reach them. By that time, Israel had Gaza under blockade during the offensive, it says, is aimed at preventing Hamas from committing more attacks like the one on October 7th and rescue hostages. With fuel and power shortages, the hospital incubators and ventilators stopped working and the Gaza Ministry of Health says in the days before the babies could be reached, eight died. Banna says she didn't know if her daughters were still alive. But then she recognised them in a video sent out by a nurse and she was able to reunite with them today. She sat in an ambulance beside her baby girls who were all bundled under blankets and in blue fleece hats about to cross to Egypt. NPR producer Anas Baba was there. So she told me that this is the first time to see them. I want to hug them. I want to kiss them. I, I, I want to like truly cuddle them tightly. But I cannot, I cannot even touch them because they, I do believe this is going to be like unhygienic and maybe that's going to give them any disease. He says the most she could do was put out her finger when one of the babies raised her hand and held on to it tightly. It was phenomenal, the look on her face. It just like the mother that finally became a 100% mom with the touch of her child. There were four other premature babies in the ambulance, and Banna said she will help care for them too. Only a few mothers were with the 28 babies sent to Egypt today, with medics still trying to reach some of the parents, or even find out if they're still alive. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. And this is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts Friday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. The conflict between Israel and Hamas. Deep division in Congress and a looming election. Devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Israeli parliament is debating legislation that would establish the death penalty for terrorists. NPR's Brian Mann reports the families of hostages captured by Hamas say such a measure could disrupt ongoing efforts to free their loved ones. In a post on social media, Israel's National Security Minister Itmar Ben-Gavir described the proposed death penalty for terrorists as ethical and necessary after Hamas's attack. I'm sure this law will have support from all sides, he wrote. 
But families of hostages captured by Hamas made a public plea that the issue be tabled while negotiations are underway for their release. Today's discussion endangers the lives of our loved ones, family members said. The discussion went forward despite those fears, but even some members of the Knesset who support the death penalty said the debate was ill-timed. Establishing a death penalty has long been a goal for far-right members of Israel's coalition government. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The White House says it's close to reaching a deal to secure the release of some of the hostages being held in Gaza. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the administration remains in close contact with the families of Americans being held by Hamas. We're doing the best we can with the information that we have to keep the families informed, American families informed. Uh, there's not that many of them. Uh, we know who they are. You know, I'm not going to lie here. It, 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 you know, there's in some cases a paucity of information. I mean, it's just it has been difficult to get any great detail on every single hostage. Kirby says about 800 U.S. citizens have been able to evacuate Gaza through the Rafah crossing. He also says an additional 100 trucks carrying humanitarian aid, including fuel, have been able to deliver supplies in the region. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The New Hampshire primary is just nine weeks away, and candidate Nikki Haley is urging Granite State voters to back her bid for the GOP presidential nomination. Today in New Hampshire, the former U.N. ambassador under Donald Trump said that Trump is no longer suited to lead the country. Here's WBUR's Anthony Brooks. Nikki Haley has climbed into second place, but is still far behind Trump, according to recent polls. Haley has been threading a needle, appealing to moderates while trying not to alienate hardcore supporters of the former president, a sometimes difficult dance. As she campaigned and hooks it on Monday, Haley repeated her line that Trump was the right president at the right time. But the reality is chaos follows him. And when we've got an economy out of control and we've got wars around the world, we can't afford any more chaos. Trump, who faces 91 criminal charges across multiple cases, says if re-elected, he'd weaponize the Justice Department to go after his political opponents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks in Manchester, New Hampshire. Political strategist John Walsh has died. Walsh helped steer Deval Patrick to winning the governorship in 2006. Patrick was the first black governor in the state. Walsh also served as the state's Democratic Party chair. He grew up in Abington and died from stomach cancer today. He was 65 years old. We're getting details about this weekend's arrest of Bruins winger Milan Lucic following a reported domestic incident at his home. Boston police say they met the player's wife in the lobby of the couple's North End condo complex at 1 in the morning Saturday. She told police in a 911 call that her husband pulled her hair and tried to choke her after he accused her of hiding his cell phone. Lucic will be in court on domestic violence charges tomorrow. He's on an indefinite leave from the Bruins. The forecast is ahead. WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com, and Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. It's been a nice day today, a cold night tonight down in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly cloudy highs in the low 40s. Could have full-on rain on Wednesday with high winds, making it to the low 50s. Partly sunny on Thanksgiving Day Thursday. 38 degrees now in Boston at 435. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We're continuing our series from Radio Diaries about those buried in America's largest public cemetery on New York's Hart Island. Back in 1995, Lamont Dotton was a 21-year-old freshman at Queens College when one evening he didn't come home. Within 48 hours, his mother was at a local police precinct trying to report him missing. His name was added to a pile of thousands of cases that the NYPD's missing persons squad was supposed to investigate, and Lamont's case fell through the cracks. This is a story about the New York City Police Department and a woman's search to find out what happened to her son. It took me 30 days to get him officially reported missing. My name is Dr. Anita Fowler, and Lamont Dotton was my son who went missing in 1995. I remember walking in to the precinct. There was a full room of people scurrying around while I'm talking to a man who's being very nonchalant with me. Now here I'm a mother trying to report my one and only child missing. And no matter what I said, he says, no, take my word for it. He'll be home soon, you know. He was considered an adult. And then I called at least twice a week at night, because that's when they would work the shift for missing persons. One day turned into two days, and two days turned into three days, and unbelievably, months. The missing persons squad at that time was in a state of disrepair. There was no work being done on cases. Record keeping wasn't good. I'm Philip Mahoney. I was the commanding officer of the missing person squad in the New York City Police Department from 1998 to 2000. My name's Cameron Brown. I was a detective in the missing persons department from 1997 to 2002. The amount of case law that each individual detective had there was amazing. And there was not a lot of investigation. They didn't have vehicles for us to actually go out and do the interviews. It was just mostly phone calls at that point. You know, hi, this is Detective Brown. You made a report on so-and-so missing. Did they come home? No, they didn't. Okay, thank you. I remember looking at this spreadsheet of open missing person cases. It just went on for like 100 pages. This article is from the Daily News, November 21st, 1995. Harlow's resident, Arnita Fowler, hadn't had time to prepare for Thanksgiving. She's been too busy checking city hospitals, the morgue, and jails in a desperate search for her 21-year-old son. I was known as a one-woman search party. I'm creating my own press conferences. I've learned how to write press releases on the fly. I would look in every homeless person's face as I walked the streets. I go, was that crazy? But I know that I could not live the rest of my life not knowing. 
if he was out there. I was 17 when I had my son and everything I did evolved around him. We were always together. And I know he was saying, my mom's gonna find me. I became lieutenant and commanding officer of the missing person squad in 1998. Then I immediately tried to organize the missing person squad. And so we appointed a couple of people to go through that list, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of active cases that had accumulated over the years, page by page, name by name, and find out what happened to these people that the missing person squad never followed up on. It felt good. I was actually out doing investigations and we had two or three cases from, you know, the 50s. They would start with very basic checks, fingerprint checks and so on. We did find a lot of people through routine checks. I spent four years looking for my son. And then this one particular night, I picked up the phone in frustration and called. And the same man who had been telling me no, it was the same guy. He said, sure, we'll meet you. And when they came, there was a lady officer. She said they had discovered that they hadn't dotted every I and crossed every T. Okay, so I'm reading from a missing persons report. The report says that the missing person was found floating in the river, October 1995. And after that. So apparently, eight days after Lamont went missing, they found his body. And their process requires them to submit fingerprints. To identify him through fingerprints which could be difficult if they were in the water for a long time. And the FBI matched it with an arrest that was made. He was arrested for a stolen car when he was in high school. But the NYPD never followed up for results of that identification until 1999, four years later. On this date, the deceased was identified as Lamont Dotton through fingerprints. In view of the facts stated above, the undersigned recommends that this case be marked closed. I couldn't imagine that this is the outcome after four years. I don't know how he died. I do not believe it was suicide. And there was no blood force trauma, nothing indicating foul play. This is the paper that shows where my son was buried at in Hearts Island. There's no name, it just says Mel. To bury my son in a place as though he had no one. And it shows the date of death and the day he was exhumed four years later. I remember opening the paper and seeing the picture of the body and the horse-drawn carriage going around. Queens. I was like, wow, we had that case, look. And we're all looking at it. I just can't imagine any of my children not coming home or not knowing what happened to them. This is uh, the Daily News, September Daily News, 21st, 1999. Student laid to rest. Four years after being buried in a pompous grave, a missing Queens student was finally given a proper burial yesterday and it was a perfect funeral he was drawn by two horses in a a carriage and the casket itself is all white like the horses 
it is where I believe that he deserved nothing but the best. I needed memories to be something that you could reflect on who he was, the prince that he was to me. Following years of advocacy by Fowler, New York State passed a law in 2016 requiring police to expedite searches for missing adults. It's called Lamont Dotton's Law. And some news. After more than a century of Heart Island being mostly off-limits, the New York City Parks Department has announced they are starting public tours this week. This story was produced by Elisa Escarce and the Radio Diaries team. To hear the other stories in the Unmarked Graveyard series, visit the Radio Diaries podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The small town of Plains, Georgia, is remembering former First Lady Rosalind Carter. The wife of former President Jimmy Carter died yesterday at her home there. She was 96 years old. Grant Blankenship with Georgia Public Broadcasting is in Plains. Hi there. Hey, how are you doing? I am well. Nationally, Rosalind Carter was well known for a number of things, but particularly her work on mental health issues, her advocacy for caregivers. How do people there in her hometown of Plains remember her? Well, you know, they remember her as a visionary in other ways, too. Um, The most obvious examples of that are the butterfly gardens bearing her name that are scattered across town. I met Annette Wise working in one right by the city welcome sign. She says the garden started over a decade ago when Mrs. Carter first learned of worldwide decline of insects and asked Annette Wise if she'd help create what today you might know as your pollinator garden. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'll be glad to. So that one garden that started in her front yard, we wanted to have milkweed in it and native plants and plants that would attract butterflies and serve as a habitat for them. But that one garden has led to over 3,000 gardens scattered all around the United States. Yeah, and not just the United States. And that why says today there are official Rosalind Carter butterfly trail gardens in Europe and Japan. Wow. Now, I know both Carters were born and raised there in Plains. What can you tell us about their lives when they grew up there? Well, you know, they both attended Plains High School, where the mascot was the buffalo. And you can still buy a Plains Buffalo t-shirt in the gift shop in the school, which today is the National Park Service's Jimmy Carter Historic Site. And of course, next week, it will see people from all over the world who will gather to honor Mrs. Carter. And that's also where I met Lisa Cobb of Butler, Georgia. She was one of three women charged with cleaning up the classrooms and hallways, you know, vacuuming and dusting and just just getting the place ready for all those visitors. And to her, that was an important way to reflect back on Mrs. Carter's qualities. Decency and respect. And you should respect them. Respect her. Because she put up with a lot, being the president's wife, going different places and raising a family. It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, remember, Carter raised four children while first, you know, keeping books for the family peanut farm, then later advocating for mental health care, and eventually being known as the first activist first lady since Eleanor Roosevelt. The Carters traveled the world after they left the White House, but it seems like they always were pulled back to Plains and spent most of their lives there. Is that so? Yeah, you know, they did stay here in Plains. I mean, and this is where they had neighbors and family and and fellow parishioners at Maranatha Baptist Church, like Winston Churchill, who I met downtown by the historic rail depot. Every Thursday, Saturday of the month, we give away a distribution of food to the poor. And that's when I met her, you know, I shook her hands right here. To me, she was humble, just 
no political, you know, so it was always one person to another, you know. And that's really the common thread. It's whether it was one-on-one -on -one or on the international stage, Rosalind Carter is being remembered as a, a humble person who did the best to live out her values through causes she believed in, really to the benefit of all of us. Mm. Greg, do you have a sense of how the folks there in Plains are planning to celebrate Rosalind Carter's life? Right, yeah. After three days of observance, both here and in Atlanta, uh, she will be laid to rest here in Plains at the Carter family home. Grant Blankenship with Georgia Public Broadcasting. Grant, thank you. Yeah, thanks for your time. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. 600 people live in a small border town in California, and the recent arrival of more than 300 migrants has divided the community. We'll take you there after 5 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR. Hear the story in just about 20 minutes. If you're taking a road trip this fall, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live. Or tap on the WBR app to rewind the shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. Today and Thanksgiving Day Thursday should be the brightest days of the week. Tonight, clear skies and cold down in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, highs in the low 40s. Wednesday, we should have a lot of rain, high winds as well. May make it to the low 50s. As of now, the holiday Thursday should be partly sunny and dry. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. SemesterOff.com. And the Museum of Science, all aboard. Trains at Science Park now open. See model trains in a classic winter landscape or Polar Express in 4D. Visit MOS.org. How can you tell when a video is real or fabricated by artificial intelligence? Researchers are building defenses to protect your face and voice from so-called deep fakes. It scrambles the signal such that it prevents the AI from generating an effective copycat. Outfaking deep fakes tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Russian President Vladimir Putin has sharply intensified his crackdown on the media since launching the fallout war in Ukraine. Two American journalists are in detention there facing what supporters say are trumped-up charges. Journalists who criticize the war risk long prison sentences. Yet independent Russian journalism is far from dead. It simply moved offshore, as NPR's Philip Reeves discovered during a trip to Latvia in the Baltics. I had two jobs in Moscow. I was a university teacher and I was a journalist. And both of my jobs were destroyed. Until recently, Kirill Martinov was editor-in-chief of Russia's oldest independent newspaper, Novaya Gazeta. Then, in February last year, Putin launched all-out war on Ukraine. Martinov's life was turned upside down. I was fired from universities because I, I discussed uh, this 
war with my students and uh, Novaya Gazeta was shut down by Russian authorities officially more than one year ago. Martinov says this meant he faced a simple choice. I need to be silent or I, I will go to prison or the other option I will do the same stuff but outside Russia. He chose the second option and came here. This is Riga. It's the capital of Latvia, a tiny Baltic nation that was once part of the Soviet Union, but is now in NATO. Its government strongly supports Ukraine. Here Martinov runs Novaya Gazeta Europe, an offshoot of his old organization. Here he can publish those stories about Russia that would have landed him in jail back home. He's not alone. We've come to a place specially created as a haven for journalists seeking refuge in this city. This is the kitchen, and uh, here we have a list of birthdays. We provide uh, coffee and tea and vitamins. Sabina Sile is Latvian. She's co-founder of Riga's Media Hub, a non-profit that runs this place. This is also the place where we hold uh, community events. If we're all gathering with our families and children. So far, the hub's helped more than 500 media workers and their families. Here they can access free legal advice, learn Latvian, and relieve the stress with a workout. The working space is brightly decorated. There are comfy chairs and flowers and paintings. The reason for making it comfortable and homey is so that people could feel not just physically safe but also emotionally. This is important, especially for new arrivals. A lot of them had to leave very quickly in a matter of hours to pack their bags and leave, but also it's a difficult decision to leave your maybe parents behind not knowing when the next time uh, will be when you see them. Riga's a captivating city. It has parks and ancient churches, cocktail bars and fancy coffee shops. Forests and beaches are just a short drive away. Yet arriving Russians sometimes struggle to adapt. Some quit media organizations back home in protest over censorship, only to find a job shortage here. Paying for accommodation and organizing residency papers is increasingly challenging, says Sile. Last winter was tough. People were really, really struggling. There were suicide attempts, and um, so we were happy that none of it was successful and that we were able to support each other and get through it together. Denise Kemalyagin is sitting at a nearby desk. He's chief editor of Pskovskaya Gubernia, a small independent newspaper in Pskov in Western Russia. The Kremlin insists journalists call its war in Ukraine a special military operation. I got out of there so that I could call a war a war, says Kamalyagin. Nine days after the war started, police commandos seized all the equipment from his newspaper headquarters, forcing it to close. A few days later, they raided his home. Kamalyagin says he hurriedly fled Russia, carrying only a backpack. His paper's been in trouble before. In 2015, it angered the authorities by revealing Russian paratroopers had been killed in the Donbas in eastern Ukraine, even though the Kremlin denied any Russian military was there. Kamalyagin thinks this time his paper was targeted to stop it reporting Russian fatalities since the all-out invasion of Ukraine. This hasn't worked. His news portal is covering the story from here, using a secret network of anonymous journalists at home. He says it's keeping a running total of dead soldiers from his area. 
For Russian journalists here in Latvia, life is much safer. They play cat and mouse with Russian authorities who block their outlets, forcing them to switch platforms. They also still face threats from Moscow. Russia's lower house of parliament, the Duma, talks of stripping disloyal Russians of property and passports. These people who hope the Nazi regime in Ukraine will be victorious are not welcome here, says Speaker Vyacheslav Volodin at a recent hearing. Those who return to Russia should be sent to the Gulag, he says. Back across the border in Latvia, the new arrivals have had a mixed reception. The country's sizable population of ethnic Russians includes Putin supporters. Other Latvians remember the repressive Soviet years and tend to view Russians with suspicion. Yet Kirill Matinov of Novaya Gazeta Europe says overall there's been a warm welcome from Latvian authorities. Because they were under Soviet occupation and they had thousands of people who lived in exile for decades and so they understand quite clear what it, what does it means when you know when you have a heavy dictatorship in your country and you're forced to move abroad. Not every journalist who's here to avoid prison or worse back home is Russian. The level of absurdity there is so high that it's often difficult for people to believe. Anastasia Zakarevich is from Belarus, Moscow's closest European ally. She was detained while covering opposition protests in 2020 and spent days in custody. She's now a refugee in Latvia. A few months ago, her father, back home, died suddenly. I had to look at the funerals of my dad on the screen of my smartphone. And this is the worst experience in the life. Riga's media exiles hope one day soon all this will end. I believe that we will face years or maybe decades of this divided Europe and rise of hate and distrust. Yet it's hard to be optimistic, says Kirill Martinov. Martinov is not sure he will ever be able to go home. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Riga, Latvia. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988-SUICIDE-AND-CRISIS lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Should have clear skies tonight. Some of the coldest temperatures of the season, 23 degrees for a low tonight. Tomorrow, clouds should increase as the day progresses. Winds pick up only about the low 40s tomorrow. Wednesday should be wet and windy, a little warmer too. Temperatures in the low 50s. Things should dry up in time for Thanksgiving Day on Thursday. 35 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.59. WBUR supporters include the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance. ProviderIG.com. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A border town in California has a population of 600. More than 300 people seeking asylum are cycling through an open-air homeland security camp there. Some locals are offering food and water. Others are angry. They'll be here for three days destroying my property and they'll be gone. And I have to live with their destruction right here. afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up, also hard to believe today, but the Gaza Strip was once calm enough to host a U.S. president, and Palestinian statehood seemed like a real possibility. It was the story of hope. Many people were optimistic. A Palestinian journalist reflects on the past 25 years. Also, the company that makes chat, GPT, is in turmoil. More than 500 employees have threatened to quit. These stories and the news headlines and Wall Street numbers are all coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says it's getting closer to a deal to release some hostages being held in Gaza. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, officials say there's an hour-by-hour effort to secure their release. The White House continues to sound cautiously optimistic about reaching an agreement to release some of the roughly 200-plus hostages seized by Hamas during last month's attacks in Israel. John Kirby, the president's spokesman at the National Security Council, said the administration is doing everything it can to get the hostages released including young children. Uh, We believe we're closer than we've ever been, so we're hopeful. But there's still work to be done, and nothing is done until it's all done, so we're going to keep working on this. Kirby also said that more Americans are leaving Gaza. He said 800 U.S. citizens have been able to leave through the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Federal appeals court is looking at how to balance former President Donald Trump's First Amendment rights with the need to protect Trump's trial next year on election interference charges. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports on arguments before federal appeals court today. A lawyer for Donald Trump told the court that a gag order against him in the federal election interference case is clearly unconstitutional, and the gag limits his core political speech during a presidential campaign. But prosecutors said Trump has a history of using inflammatory language against investigators and witnesses. Statements they say have prompted Trump's supporters to threaten and harass his critics. During the arguments, the three-judge panel asked questions about how to distinguish between Trump's criminal defense and his rhetoric on the campaign trail. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. In a tech sector saga that's grown increasingly bizarre, Microsoft now says it's hired OpenAI founders Sam Altman and Greg Brockman after the company's board fired Altman and then sought to reverse course. 
Microsoft, a shareholder in the company, made the announcement late Sunday that hired both men. Brockman quit late last week in protest over OpenAI's board decision to fire Altman. More than 700 employees of OpenAI have threatened to resign. Millions of Americans are expected to travel by car or plane over the Thanksgiving holiday. NPR's Joel Rose reports it's forecast to be one of the busiest holiday travel seasons ever. The number of people flying now is higher than it was before the pandemic. The Transportation Security Administration expects to screen a record 30 million people in the 12-day holiday period that started last Friday. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the aviation system will be ready. This year we are seeing more people flying than ever with fewer cancellations than we have seen in years. Most Thanksgiving travelers will drive to their destinations. AAA says traffic on the roads will be close to pre-pandemic levels, with 49 million people on the move. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. An up session to start the week on Wall Street. The Dow rose 203 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy is announcing statewide initiative to confront hate crimes in Massachusetts. The Hate Crimes Awareness and Response Team, or HART Team is what it's called. It will operate under the state police and also respond to incidents of hate crimes. Jack Mon is a colonel with the Massachusetts State Police. The HART team is a diverse and multilingual group of troopers who have demonstrated exceptional investigative experience and skill. Their work will continue to build upon the many proactive initiatives and strong partnerships in Massachusetts and enhance our resolve to confront and deter unlawful acts of hate while ensuring the Commonwealth's ability to celebrate our diversity and uphold our values. The announcement follows a report from the Anti-Defamation League that finds hate crimes rose more than 30 percent in the state from 2021 to 2022. Starting tonight, Massachusetts will temporarily house migrant families in need of shelter in the State Department of Transportation building. Conference rooms in the agency's Boston headquarters are going to be converted into shelter space for about 25 families in the evening and overnight. State officials estimate the temporary shelter space will remain open for at least the next two weeks. The Massachusetts Family Shelter System reached capacity of about 7,500 families earlier this month. A Democratic strategist who helped Deval Patrick win his campaign for governor has died. John Walsh is being remembered for understanding the value of grassroots organizing by engaging with people and listening to them. The chair of the state Democratic Party, Steve Kerrigan, says Walsh's legacy is not only getting Democrats elected, but inspiring the next generation of leaders. Being an example to them for what a true leadership in a democracy looks like and a true value of engaging in people's communities and in the causes and, and cares that they care about. Kerrigan says Walsh spent his life doing good things and having an impact on people's lives. Walsh died in hospice care today after he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. He was 65. Christopher Columbus Park in Boston's North End hosts its annual holiday lighting at this hour. The park's trellis will be illuminated with 50,000 blue lights for the holiday season. The event will also include live music, refreshments, and a special visit from Santa Claus and Rudolph. In the forecast, 35 degrees all the way down to the mid-20s overnight tonight. And for tomorrow, partly cloudy, temperatures in the low 40s. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving.
This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's being called a humanitarian disaster, and it's happening in Southern California on the U.S.-Mexico border. A record number of asylum seekers are showing up in a small town called Hacumba. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. On a chilly autumn morning, I'm driving through the Hakamba Desert with Jacqueline Arellano. She's with Border Kindness, a humanitarian aid group. Suddenly, our drive is interrupted by two young men on the side of the road asking for help. Hey, are you okay? Yeah, we are okay. We just, we just waited. They're from Turkey. They just crossed the border with about 18 other people. They're exhausted. And then they ask for something I've never heard as an immigration reporter. Please call border patrol you want us to call yeah if you can call it's i think if they come is much better almost as soon as they say it border patrol rolls up and takes some as strange as it sounds this is what they want they've been told that if they cross and turn themselves over to border patrol they're taking the first step towards getting a visa or asylum so every day for the last few months coyotes guide more than 300 migrants to a large gap in the border wall and when they cross it, they find themselves in the outskirts of the tiny town of Hakamba, population around 600. They end up at camps like this one, an open field near the highway where Border Patrol has told them to wait. About 150 adults and children huddled together for warmth. There is no shelter of any kind from the gusty wind or desert cold. A Kurdish man, Ramazan Bichar, tells me he crossed early this morning. He talks about government persecution and poverty in Turkey, where he's from. My plan is just uh, get my green card and stay here all of my life. We don't have any, cho- any choice, any other choice. Yeah, we don't have any other choice. Most people in this camp this morning are Kurdish. A woman from Honduras says she left home because she received threats for being gay. She breaks down crying. She hasn't spoken to her family since she left a month ago. I won't tell them I made it, she says, until I'm out of here. It's a dystopian scene, one where one might expect to see the Red Cross, the National Guard, Doctors Without Borders. NPR reached out to Customs and Border Protection multiple times for an explanation, but received no response. But migrants and volunteers told NPR every day Border Patrol finds hundreds of people who have made their way through the gap, drops them off at these camps and tells them to stay put. They're told if they leave, they'll get deported. But the agency itself does not seem to acknowledge these camps as official. And there is barely any oversight. The only people coming to help are locals and volunteers. They're handing out baby formula, first aid, water and food when a border patrol truck shows up. The agent tells families with children to line up. The families are taken away in a van. If they're like everyone else we spoke to, they think this is the first step towards getting legal status in the U.S. Here's what immigration lawyers told NPR is likely to happen. These people will be processed. Everyone here will be placed in removal proceedings. And because they crossed without permission, their chances of getting asylum are lower than had they come in through an official port of entry. There is confusion. Are you asking because of baby or Hassan? They don't. They are family. You can go. You can go if you want. 
In a few hours, another couple hundred migrants from somewhere else in the world will arrive in Hakamba. It's like a revolving door in the middle of the California desert. An older man wearing a baseball cap watches the whole thing. His name is Jerry Schuster. They'll be here for three days destroying my property and they'll be gone. And I have to live with their destruction right here. Schuster is also an immigrant from Yugoslavia. He bought this land some 40 years ago. Then a few months ago, he woke up to find it being used without his permission at a migrant camp by people who are hungry, thirsty, sometimes wounded. There is a disgusting porta potty. Those who stay overnight cut down trees for bonfires. Sometimes people come knocking on his door. Once, he says he replied with gunshots. They start coming there and I got my gun and I shoot the air four times. Schuster says he's spoken many times to Border Patrol, the police, the fire department. He keeps getting told they can't help him. He says he's heartbroken. This ranch was his American dream. Our government is just leaving us behind. American dream is gone. It's not here no more. That's just a dream. That's all he's left, just a dream. This sense of anxiety and dread is shared by many here in Hakamba. Even those who are going down as often as they can to offer humanitarian assistance. Winter is approaching. They're worried that people will start dying. Scabies, parasites, necrotic, scorpion bites. Karen Parker has lived in this area her whole life. She's a retired social worker with first aid training. She goes down to the camps as often as she can. Seizures. Seizures. Diabetic emergencies. Yes, broken bones, burns, lots of burns. She says the children really get to her. They have every reason in the world to seek asylum on American soil, you know. My grandmother came from Ireland when she was 12 years old, by herself. And if she hadn't done that, my grandchildren wouldn't exist in America. But she's also angry that civilians like herself have been left to handle this alone, with no help from the government. What the f with them? I don't know what else to say. I mean, they're not taking any kind of responsibility or accountability. They need to let people through the port of entry. They need to secure our border. I am for a secure border. When Karen and other volunteers step up to help at the camps, they sometimes get yelled at by other Hakamba residents. We meet one of those neighbors as volunteers load up on food and first aid supplies for the camps to use at night. A woman in a pickup truck rolls up and starts shouting. That food over there, is it for Americans, she asks, or do you only help immigrants? Nobody's doing nothing about it. Mm. She doesn't give her name. She says it's a small town and she could lose her job. The volunteers ignore her and drive to the camps. Oh, in the back? Yeah. By nightfall, the temperature there has plummeted. <laughs> An entirely new group of migrants has arrived, about 60 people. This time, they're mostly Chinese. Huddling for warmth, they talk about what they're fleeing from, repressive governments, cartel violence, poverty. They seem unaware that just a few hours ago, another hundred or so people from other parts of the world sat right here and had the same exact conversation. They think they are doing it the legal way, but in a few hours, they will be signed up for removal proceedings. It feels eerily cyclical. In the middle of the Southern California desert, the door keeps revolving. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, Hakamba.
It's been a dizzying few days for the artificial intelligence startup OpenAI. Its board of directors made a surprise move and fired the CEO, Sam Altman. Now hundreds of employees have signed a letter threatening to leave the company unless the board is dissolved and Altman comes back. NPR's Dara Kerr is here to talk about it. Hey, Dara. Hi, Ari. First, tell us what's in this letter. Yeah, this is something we've never really seen before in Silicon Valley, where employees of a company basically hold a mass revolt. This is just not this isn't just any company, OpenAI. It makes a popular chatbot, ChatGPT, which has been on the vanguard of a powerful form of artificial intelligence that is now changing our world. So OpenAI has around 770 employees, and last night, 500 of them signed this letter to the board. The letter says that employees have lost faith in the board and that by firing Sam Altman, they jeopardize the mission of OpenAI. The employees demand the entire board resign and reinstate Altman and his co-founder, Greg Brockman. And now even more employees have signed the letter throughout the course of today, around 700 of them. That's nearly the entire company. Incredible to think of those hundreds of employees all speaking with one voice. Explain for us how this all got started. So late Friday afternoon, the news breaks that OpenAI's board had fired Altman. Everyone was surprised, including Altman himself and the company's employees. The board published a blog post online and said that Altman hadn't been candid in his communication with them, and they'd lost their confidence in his ability to lead OpenAI, but they didn't give any specific reasons. And that was just the beginning. At the time, the board said it was appointing the company's chief technology officer as the new CEO, but then that was quickly rescinded, and the job is now going to Emmett Shear, who's the co-founder of Twitch, which is a popular video game platform. Meanwhile, Altman was angling to come back to OpenAI, but those talks fell apart. Speculation has been flying about why he was fired, which is still pretty much an unknown. Here's Joellen Posner, an associate professor at Santa Clara University School of Business. It's impossible to know what happens at a board meeting ever. So it's hard to know exactly what their motivation was and who was the driving force. Then things switched up again. Last night, Microsoft announced it was hiring Altman and Brockman to lead its AI team. And this wasn't entirely out of the blue because Microsoft already had a deep, long-standing relationship with Altman and OpenAI, right? Yes, yeah. Microsoft owns a 49% stake in OpenAI and has invested billions of dollars in the startup. OpenAI is the leading company for generative AI, and its chatbot, at ChatGPT has written poems like Emily Dickinson, it's passed the bar exam, and it can mimic human behavior in really realistic ways. And many say this new wave of technology could forever change our lives, much like the internet did in the 1990s. And eventually it could be worth trillions. But some technologists warn the technology has a potential to cause harm with things like disinformation running rampant and yeah. chatbots taking away people's jobs. Okay, that is so NPR's Derek Kerr. I'm sorry we have to leave it there. Thank you. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A short week on Wall Street began with an upswing today. The Dow rose nearly six-tenths of a percent. S&P pulled in about three-quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq gained more than one and a tenth percent. More business coming up. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast.
Chewy.com, the online pet supplies retailer with one of its headquarters in Boston, is laying off at least 200 employees. It's not clear how many in Boston might be laid off. But TechCrunch reports the cuts will include human resources and also recruiting, data, and business intelligence. Chewy has said inflation is turning customers toward lower-cost pet food and pulling back on items such as pet treats. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans in the Northeast stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Should have clear skies tonight, some of the coldest temperatures of the season down to 23 degrees overnight. Then for tomorrow, we should have cloudy skies, more clouds as the day goes on, winds picking up high temperatures in the low 40s. Wednesday should be full-on rain with high winds around, making it to the low 50s. As of now, the holiday on Thursday should be partly sunny and dry. This is WBUR, 35 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Democrats in Wisconsin have long complained about the state's gerrymandered legislative map. Tomorrow, they'll make their case for changing it to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Chuck Quirmbach of member station WUWM reports. Statewide elections in Wisconsin are often really close, but Republicans have nearly two-thirds supermajorities in both houses of the state legislature. Democrats say that's partly because conservatives have had too much control over recent redistricting. But the case Democrats are making at the high court begins with a more narrow argument. All the territory needs to be touching. It needs to be one unit. But that's not the way the maps look. Attorney Jeff Mandel represents 19 Democratic voters. He argues the Wisconsin Constitution requires the 132 legislative districts in the state to be contiguous. The majority of the districts in Wisconsin presently include non-contiguous territory, little islands and chunks that are disconnected from the rest of the district. Mandel says that dilutes the ability of voters to unify behind common interests. But Attorney Luke Berg, who represents 10 Wisconsin voters from districts Democrats want to change, challenges the contiguity claim. Berg says the legislative maps have long recognized that some communities in this state have disconnected neighborhoods. Everybody has understood that you're allowed to keep a town together even though its parts are disconnected. And so the resulting district then will sometimes have these tiny little disconnected islands. Burke says very few of the more than 200 voter islands in Wisconsin have significant populations. The Wisconsin redistricting case also focuses on separation of powers, with Democrats arguing the state Supreme Court, when conservative justices controlled it last year, 
wrongly inserted itself into a redistricting dispute and accepted GOP-drawn maps. Republicans refute that claim. But liberals now control the Wisconsin court with recently elected Justice Janet Protasewicz. She's refused to recuse herself from the case for calling the maps rigged while campaigning, even as Republican lawmakers threaten to impeach her, depending on how she rules in the redistricting fight. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirnbach in Milwaukee. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The loved ones of people who struggle with addiction are often told they need to take a tough love approach with the person addicted. Now some local experts are questioning that thinking. They say friends and family can play a different role to help people into recovery. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. Close to one-third of all adults in the U.S. say someone in their family has been addicted to opioids. Ken Feldstein is among them. His son, Brendan, was in college when another parent called and said this. Kenny, I don't know if you realize this or know this, but Brendan is really struggling with heroin. And I was, like, floored. Ken is sitting outside a coffee shop in southeastern Massachusetts. He recalls the years of looking for help for Brendan in about two dozen treatment programs and sober homes and always feeling alone. We felt we couldn't, you know, talk to neighbors or friends about it. The the stigma is so, so strong. He and his now late wife Barbara went to peer support groups. While that helped, Ken says the advice was clear. Distance yourself from your loved one or your enabling. And that, he was told, would be almost like putting the syringe in his child's arm. So, big gulp of that Kool-Aid. And it sounded very reasonable because nothing we were doing was working. Ken says they opted for the so-called tough love approach and they didn't allow Brendan to come home. Ken was anxious. He didn't get any better when we made the decision to not let him stay at the house. And he could have died. Ken didn't want to take the risk and welcomed Brendan back into the family. So I landed on love. I still feel that love wins. I'll never forget the look on his face. It was just a a mixture of love and sadness. Brendan noticed the shift. Of all the experiences that I had in trying to get sober and failing, that stayed with me. Even though research has shown that human connection is key in helping overcome addiction, loved ones are not often included in treatment, and there is little support for them during or afterward. For Brendan, treatment was just a short break. You know, did it give me a, a bed and food, and, and was that helpful in a survival sense? Yes. Did the experience help me remain sober? I think I used the day I got out. That pattern was about to change. Brendan was in yet another treatment program for just a few weeks when his mom entered hospice care with breast cancer. The program's rules were if he left for any reason, he could not return. But Brendan did go to help care for his dying mother. I ended up carrying my mother in my arms like a, like a child up the stairs. It was a sort of literal and figurative moment of strength for me. You know, my mother who once carried me, I am now carrying and caring for. Brendan truly realized he had reached a turning point when he opened the fridge and saw his mom's liquid morphine. At the time I was alone, I I held it there for a bit. But he put it back. 
I decided in that moment, never again, not doing it anymore. You've caused enough hurt. It's time to step up and give this family, you know, a reason to to hang on. Brendan hasn't used drugs in the almost decade since. The support of his family and a strong 12-step fellowship, he says, were key to his recovery. Some addiction clinicians are encouraging providers to lean on so-called social supports like families. I want to move us away from a historical and incorrect assumption that family members are the root cause of addiction or that they are responsible for perpetuating the disorder. That's Alicia Ventura with Boston Medical Center in a virtual training for addiction professionals. She's trained thousands of providers, encouraging them to work with loved ones and avoid using labels like codependent. Ventura says with the deadly opioid fentanyl permeating the drug supply, treatment needs to evolve. We need to start trying new things. And part of that really is going to be improving their interactions with their families and taking advantage of these people who innately love them and want to care for them. Some addiction experts worry, though, that loved ones already shoulder a lot and their health is at risk. And they say many people don't stop using substances unless they face consequences. Ken Feldstein says it shouldn't be one approach versus another, and each family needs to do what works best for them. You've got to be able to do the thing that you do best as a parent and... That is love your children. Now, whatever form that takes, I don't think that's enabling. I think that's doing what comes naturally to us as parents. Because, he says, there's no one way to achieve recovery. And for most people, even his son, Brendan, it's a complex, individual, mysterious journey. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. WBUR in Boston. The conflict in Israel and Gaza continues to evolve. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the personal stories and the history you need to understand this moment. Listen in about six minutes to hear about a time when a peaceful Gaza appeared to be progressing toward Palestinian statehood. That story is still ahead. Cold tonight down the 20s. Tomorrow clouds as the day goes on about 40 degrees once again. If you're a newcomer to Boston or just a frequent traveler, there's a fair chance you pass through Logan International Airport in East Boston. But have you ever truly explored the neighborhood around Logan? It's time for a tip from our field guide to Boston. East Boston, or Eastie as locals call it, is an immigrant neighborhood to its core. For almost two centuries, first-generation Americans have made it home. And today, Latinos from Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala make East Boston one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the city. A tip from locals, make sure you go get a pupusa, the melty, cheesy, doughy Salvadoran staple at 2 Metapon on Bennington Street. To get more familiar with what makes Boston's communities unique, check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. More than two dozen babies from Gaza's besieged Al-Shifa hospital have arrived safely in Egypt, where the premature newborns will continue to receive life-saving care. NPR's Lauren Frere reports that local television images show ambulances from Gaza transporting the babies across the border today. Noor Elbana's twins were born premature and were getting care at Gaza's biggest hospital when the war began and the hospital came under Israeli siege. Elbana couldn't visit them. Phone lines and internet went down. I didn't know whether they were dead or alive, Elbana told NPR's Gaza producer Anas Baba. Her twins were among the hundreds of patients whose life-saving machines, incubators and ventilators, turned off when Al Shifa Hospital ran out of fuel under Israeli blockade. Doctors crowded all the newborns onto a single bed to keep them warm. Now Albana has been reunited with her girls. They're among the more than two dozen babies evacuated from El Shifa. The family is now getting care in Egypt. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A federal appeals court is set to decide whether to reimpose some restrictions on former President Donald Trump's speech in his federal election subversion case. Trump attorney John Sauer argues the rationale for the gag order doesn't hold up to the standards set by other cases. Gag order in this case installs a single federal district judge as a filter for core political speech between a leading presidential candidate and virtually every American voter in the United States at the very height of a presidential campaign. Judges are debating how to craft a gag order that doesn't infringe on Trump's free speech rights or prevent him from defending himself on the campaign trail. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. In the midst of the crisis with the state's overcapacity family shelter system, homeless shelters for adults in Massachusetts are also full or overflowing, according to shelter providers. As WBUR's Lynn Jolliker tells us, they're calling for action from the state. Shelter operators and advocates sent a letter to Governor Maura Healey calling for the state to open large overflow shelters to serve young people, adults, and families. Joyce Tavon of the Massachusetts Housing and Shelter Alliance says many adult shelters filled earlier than normal this fall with higher numbers than usual. We are calling for a winter plan this year like never before that will really provide some kind of emergency shelter response for all vulnerable people. Are there military bases, large sites that could be used? State officials haven't said whether they'll open such sites. The State Department of Transportation announced today it's setting up shelter space for 25 families. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. A new child care center in Mattapan with a unique business model is now open. Kitty's Corner will take care of 19 children whose parents work outside of standard business hours. The daycare is supported by grants from the city of Boston and Boston Medical Center. Congresswoman Diana Presley attended Kitty's Corner ribbon cutting earlier today. Our families need the peace of mind that while they're working, regardless of when their shift starts, that their child is in a safe and nurturing environment, one that is filled with love. And I'm so proud today to show that we can make care accessible. We can care for our workers that have made this profession their life's work. The facility serves families in Mattapan, Roxbury, and Dorchester. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are planning to spend Thanksgiving on Nantucket again. The Bidens have spent most Thanksgiving holidays on the island since 1975. The White House says the couple will arrive on Nantucket tomorrow and will stay until Sunday. The forecast is coming up.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Get out the woolies tonight. It's likely to fall to the low 20s tomorrow around 40 once again, with clouds collecting through the day. Wednesday should be rainy, windy, a little bit warmer, should break 50 degrees. Could see the sunshine again on the holiday Thursday. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's hard to fathom today, but once the Gaza Strip was calm enough to host a U.S. president and Palestinian statehood seemed a real possibility. NPR's Greg Myrie, who's covered the Middle East for many years, takes a look back with a Palestinian journalist he worked with in Gaza. The year was 1998, and the mood was upbeat. President Bill Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton stood next to Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and his wife to cut the ribbon inaugurating the Gaza International Airport. Hillary and I, along with Chairman and Mrs. Arafat, celebrated a place that will become a magnet for planes from throughout the Middle East and beyond bringing you a future in which Palestinians can travel directly to the far corners of the world. For many Palestinians, the airport symbolized the larger effort to create a Palestinian state. It was the story of hope. Many people were optimistic. Palestinian journalist Takrid al-Khodari remembers this time well. My father and his friends, they were from the business community, when they visited the airport and then my father came to our house and this is the first time I see my father. It's like, it will happen. A Palestinian state is going to happen. Now I believe it. I traveled from Jerusalem to Gaza on dozens of reporting trips in the years that followed. El Khodari knew most everyone there and was my guide. She now lives in Amsterdam with her two kids, ages 11 and 10, and that's where I reached her. Remember those days, Greg, we used to go together. You used to come from Erez Checkpoint. We drive together. The Erez Checkpoint, that's the border crossing with Israel. It's the way I went to Gaza and the way Palestinians came out in a bizarre rush hour scene that began at precisely 3 a.m. Tens of thousands of Palestinian workers were allowed into Israel, but they had to pass stringent Israeli security checks as part of a commute that could last three hours or more. At the stroke of three, the crossing opened, and nighttime stillness turned into rush hour madness, reflecting the fraught nature of Israeli-Palestinian relations, even when they were cooperating. A big part of the story back then was the rise of Hamas. Many Hamas leaders were killed by Israeli airstrikes over the years, yet they were shockingly casual about security. Al-Khodari would call them up, and then we'd go knock on their front door. 
we used to sit and have coffee or tea and chat, trying to understand their point of view. Their view was essentially that Israel should not exist, and they talked about it openly. In 2005, it seemed Gaza might calm down at least a bit when Israel withdrew its troops from the territory. At that time, a coterie was leaving for a year at Harvard in the Neiman Fellowship Program for Journalists. It was a dramatic change from the confines of Gaza. You are exposed to all this freedom of movement and universal values and all of that you learn in American schools. And this is what you like so much and you get the stimulation and it's just so powerful. Yet when she came back the following year, Gaza was again in turmoil. The Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza was closed. El Khoudri was stuck on the Egyptian side, unable to return home to Gaza for 39 days. It was horrible just to wait. You know, the idea of waiting, waiting, and, and, and hoping that the next day is going to open, next day is going to open. It was awful. During her time away, something else happened. The Palestinians held an election and Hamas won. It was instantly clear this would have serious consequences. Shortly after the election, I spoke with NPR's Terry Gross on the program Fresh Air. What has reaction been in Israel? Israel is denying that they have such a plan to uh, force uh, the ouster of the Hamas government, but they're certainly thinking about and talking about a lot of things to make life very tough. Life in Gaza has been very tough since then. Israel and Hamas have fought every few years, including heavy battles in 2009. It was scary because I also thought I would lose my life. During Israeli airstrikes near her apartment, she huddled under a table and made promises to herself. I will share with you one that is going to Paris, to go to Paris and to enjoy life. She did. And then she moved to Amsterdam in 2010. But her family is still in Gaza today, and she worries about them constantly. I haven't left Gaza because all my family is in Gaza. All my friends. I just learned that my music teacher during my elementary school was killed. It's, it's just uh, so sad that I cannot help them. I used to cover stories of people, and now... My family is in the story. She wishes they could join her, but flights out of Gaza are a distant memory. The short-lived Gaza International Airport shut down in 2001 amid fighting. Today, it lies in ruins. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. One year after a mass shooting at an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs, the club's owners announced they'll build a permanent memorial. Survivors and members of the local queer community say Club Q has been important for their culture. Paolo Shalsetta with Colorado Public Radio attended two memorials. Club Q has been closed since the shooting. Yesterday, hundreds of people gathered to remember and honor those affected. As pop hits by Britney Spears, Natasha Bedingfield, and others played in the background, members of the LGBTQ community, survivors, and the families of victims lit incense and left flowers in front of memorials dedicated to the five people killed. Wyatt Kent, a drag queen who was performing the night of the shooting, said it was an opportunity to celebrate the memories of those lost. It's been, uh, it's been beautiful, the way that the community has wrapped itself around me and, uh, and other survivors, as well as victims' families, and have allowed us to be uh, uh, open, vulnerable, and allow ourselves to pour back into the community ourselves. So the first event been, Sunday uh, was organized by Club Q's owners. Employees, elected officials, and others spoke to those gathered. 
The second was organized by a local law firm, which invited people to beautify life-size posters of victims on the club's exterior wall. Cynthia Deer remembers Club Q as a safe space for the Colorado Springs queer community. She grew up there and went to all-ages cookouts in the club's parking lot. There'd be people who got it and then some elder queers to kind of show the way that it could be and show queer joy, which is not something you're used to, especially as a queer child in high school. Rico Marquez came to the event wrapped in a pride flag. I've been coming to Club Q for about a few years now. Um, it's actually where, where I met, where I've had <laughs> my first date with my boyfriend, <laughs> now my fiance. Club Q co-owner Matthew Haynes updated people who came to the event on the next stages of building a permanent memorial. We have spent the last year working with the architect firm HBNA and the city of Colorado Springs to modify the building development plan to allow a permanent tribute garden consisting of a flagpole surrounded by five columns, 17 boulders, and benches for reflection. The memorial will be built in front of the entrance to the building where the shooting happened, but Haynes has been planning to move the club to a new location in Colorado Springs under a new name. There's no clear timeline for when that will happen. For NPR News, I'm Pablo Chalceda in Colorado Springs. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Food and drinks that are really salty can be appealing one day and off-putting the next. Now scientists think they know why. NPR's John Hamilton reports on a study that found two separate brain circuits that influence our taste for salt. Our relationship with salt is complicated. Yukioka, a scientist at Caltech, says sodas, sports drinks, and even tap water all contain a little salt, also known as sodium chloride. You enjoy low-sodium water, but if you imagine very high concentration of sodium like ocean water, you really hate it. Unless your body is really low on salt. That's pretty rare in people these days, but Oka says experiments with animals show that when salt levels plummet, the tolerance for salty water goes up. If your body needs sodium, then animals immediately start liking ocean water. They crave sodium, and they can tolerate it in high concentrations they would normally avoid. Oka wanted to know how this system works in the brain, so he and a team of scientists studied mice. They showed that one set of neurons toward the back of the brain regulates the craving for salt. If you stimulate these neurons, then animals run to sodium source and then start eating. Another group of neurons toward the front of the brain normally sets an upper limit on salt tolerance. But when salt levels get low enough, Oka says, these neurons get switched off. This means that the sodium craving and the sodium tolerance are controlled by completely different types of neurons. The finding, which appears in the journal Cell, is part of a growing field of study called interoception. It deals with internal sensations like hunger and pain. Stephen Lieberlis, a cell biologist at Harvard Medical School, says scientists already know a lot about how the brain deals with sensory information coming from the eyes, ears, nose, and skin. The brain also receives tons of sensory information from the body, from the heart, the lungs, the stomach, the intestine, and how these work has remained more mysterious. The new study suggests that brain cells involved in salt tolerance are controlled by hormone-like substances called prostaglandins. These substances, which circulate in the bloodstream, are best known for their role in causing inflammation, fever, and pain.
Liberalist says it now appears that prostaglandins also play a role in salt tolerance. So the question is, how is the same chemical, the same prostaglandin molecule, reused across biological systems in different contexts? Answering that question might make it possible to develop a prostaglandin drug to discourage salt overconsumption. Nirupa Chaudhry of the University of Miami says we tend to eat too much salt because evolution prepared our bodies for a world in which salt is scarce. Wars were fought over salt just a few centuries ago. So we think of sodium chloride table salt as so plentiful in our diet and in our environment, but it wasn't always. Chaudhry says too much salt can lead to high blood pressure and heart disease. Salt ingestion is a major issue. Calorie ingestion is a major issue. So it becomes really critical to understand how all of these different systems work. She says understanding how the brain processes saltiness could help food companies develop a palatable salt substitute. At least one previous effort failed badly. It tasted really foul, <laughs> so people didn't want to use it. Chaudhry says finding a better option may require more research on not only how the brain monitors salt intake, but how it interacts with our taste buds. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ukraine is entering the winter months with stalled front lines for the military and uncertainty about future Western support for its war with Russia. We'll have the latest on the other war tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. Listen again when you wake up. It's a busy sports night for locals. The 11-2 and two Celtics will try to improve their best in the league record. They'll be in Charlotte to take on the Hornets. The Bruins are also the best in the league. They'll be in Tampa to take on the Lightning. Both games start up at 7 o'clock tonight. Cold tonight, down in the low 20s. Tomorrow should have clouds move in more as the day progresses, with temperatures just about 40 degrees again. And then Wednesday, lots of rain. Thursday, thankfully, some sunshine. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston is Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah. Three performances, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. HandelandHyden.org. It is now 33 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. All Things Considered continues. The time is 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. And Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Saw movies are divisive. You either love them or you hate them. The gruesome, almost 20-year-old horror franchise about a villain named Jigsaw, who traps his victims in life-or-death games, came out with its latest movie in September. But that is not the only addition to the Saw universe. There is now an off-Broadway parody musical, and a warning that this production has some gore and some sex, all of which manages to be camp. But after all that we've been through, I just want to do some filthy things to you. (laughs) And it is a romantic queer musical. NPR's Brianna Scott went to see the decidedly adult fair. Here's her report. It's a classic meet-cute. Two characters trapped in a room together on opposite sides, their ankles chained to a pipe, a dead guy between them. A totally normal way to meet someone, of course. There's tension, there's drama, there's a saw involved. We have to saw off our feet, it's the only way. We could could probably, we could use this toilet tank lid to be honest. I know who did this to us. This is a love story that I think people have wanted for 20 years. Stephanie Rosenberg is the play's director. Along with producer Cooper Jordan, the duo first came together in 2022 for the play's first run in Philadelphia. Bringing Saw to life on stage is something Jordan's wanted to do for years. He's been obsessed with Saw since junior high. I was just moved so much by it that it was so daring at the time. He's not talking about the gore here, which Saw would become well known for pushing the boundaries on. He's talking about the movie's plot. Live or die. That's Jigsaw, a.k.a. John Kramer. He traps random people as victims or, rarely, survivors in his games. I've never murdered anyone in my life. The decisions are up to them. Decisions that have to be made in a matter of seconds or hours. The grisly traps are set up to test Kramer's victims' will to live, and they usually have to endure great physical pain just to have a chance at survival. Can you imagine what it feels like to have someone sit you down? John Kramer? I tell you that you're dying. Hmm? Clock is ticking, John. But most people have the luxury of not knowing when that clock's gonna go off. And the irony of it is that that keeps them from really living their life. It keeps them drinking that glass of water, but never really tasting it. Jigsaw's message of cherishing your life and living your life to the fullest translates to this acceptance of one another that we don't have in this country right now. So reimagining Saw through a queer lens wasn't a stretch. Jordan's sister, Zoe, did research on the movie and wrote the book for the play. She found all of this queer wordplay that was actually really built into the original film script itself. My sister called me and said, Cooper, they're gay. And I said, no, no, Zoe, they know what are you talking about? And I watched it again as she watched it again afterwards. And I was like, oh my God, we really didn't see this in 2004 when we were kids. And now, all that underlying queer subtext in the movie is on full display in this musical parody. Uh, Yeah, I really, I can only read digital clocks, not gonna lie. Who is this sexy moron? Honestly, like, who can't read a clock? How'd I get stuck in here with him? Though I wonder if those pale and piercing eyes might Florence, it's not the time. This musical is so bisexual, it is beautiful. Andrew Kyra plays Dr. Lawrence Gordon. Right from the start in 2004, you were having fan fictions of these two men because you're locking two guys in a room together. It's like, will they kiss? Like, of of course they're gonna kiss. They're in a they're in a room together, but they 
can't kiss because they're chained to the walls. When Kyra first read the script, this like raunchy, erotic humor that's going on throughout it. He was a little shook. I have never come across a script quite like this one where I've had to say the things that I say and do the things that I do. My parents saw the show and I had to tell my mom like, just a, a fair warning, um, this is a character I'm playing and I, <laughs> be warned. <laughs> the things he had to do include dancing around with a blow-up sex doll named Carla. I won't spoil for you what else happens with that doll. And while he's sawing off his own foot... Now it's time to saw me. While he's doing it, it's this fun, upbeat, like, we're doing it! It's just so funny to me. I think this show works so well as a musical, and I think without the music aspect, it's like not as camp as it can be. It's a raunchy, campy musical, and it's a balancing act for the actors, hitting that sweet spot of being funny, but also sincere. You want to be funny, but the funniest thing you can do is play it absolutely straight. Jill Owen plays John Kramer, a.k.a. Jigsaw, and Amanda Young, a rare survivor of one of Jigsaw's traps. In her role as Amanda, Owen strikes that balance between being over the top and being serious. They put me in a box. They said to make your choice. And now I've made it through. I'm gonna choose to use my voice. If I'm your heroine, you ain't seen wants them to fight for the life that they want and stop lying to themselves. And so that's something that I use to kind of get the character going. For 90 minutes, the audience watches as the characters on stage discover themselves. And as the clock ticks closer to the deadline for Dr. Gordon and Adam to figure out how to get out of their traps. He's kinda hot, even though he's a grumpy Gus. I could still shoot my shot, but it's the wrong place, wrong time. Sexually hyphen frustrating. That's how Adam Parbu describes the play. Parbu plays Adam Stanhite. Most of the show is, I need this guy. I need, I need, but I can't, but yeah, we can't have him. So it's just pure like 90 whatever minutes of like, uh, until finally. A climax that starts with a pinky promise and ends with a kiss. Wait, Lawrence, wait. Are we gonna be okay? I would love you. Pinky promise. When it comes to Saw the Musical, people shouldn't expect blood and guts galore. That isn't what this musical is. What audiences can expect is an unapologetically queer and campy comedy that has a deeper underlying message. Rather than live or die, make your choice. That's my Jigsaw impression. Director Stephanie Rosenberg says this play is about living your truth. We are a place to come to be a haven, to laugh with your loved one and hold their hand regardless of who they are. Live the life you love. That's the honest truth. If you don't die, you'll be glad you're alive. And then you'll get to live the life you love. Live the life you love. From NPR, I'm Brown Scott.
This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Monday evening. Clear skies tonight, some of the coldest temperatures of the season, 23 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, clouds should increase as the day progresses. Winds picking up, high temperatures only in the low 40s. Wednesday should be wet and windy and a little bit warmer, too. Temperatures in the low 50s. Things should dry up in time for Thanksgiving Day Thursday. We could get at least a side dish of sunshine. In Boston right now, it is 33 degrees at 559. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Voting Rights Act is likely to head to the U.S. Supreme Court for another showdown after a federal appeals court today issued a significant ruling on who can sue under the act. Today is Monday, November 20th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also head after weeks apart, a mother in Gaza is reunited with her infant twins as they're evacuated for care in Egypt. An ultra-conservative economist known for his temper and eccentricities has become the president of Argentina to the surprise of few. The economic situation has been so bad for so long, and both the left and the right political establishment haven't been able to fix the situation. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The country of Jordan is sending a field hospital into Gaza, where medical facilities have been destroyed and damaged by Israeli airstrikes. Palestinian officials said it will be the first field hospital to arrive since the war began last month. NPR's Jana Raff has details from Amman, Jordan. Jordan said its military on Monday flew equipment, supplies, and 145 medical personnel into the Egyptian border crossing at El Arish to be set up in Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza. State-run media said Crown Prince Al Hussein was on the flight. It said the 41-bed hospital would be operating within a week. It includes operating theaters, emergency and intensive care units, along with 41 incubators for premature infants. The hospital will also be able to do reconstructive facial surgery for wounded patients. 
Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has traveled to Ukraine, Austin's visit to the war-torn country, even as the U.S. and international resources are being stretched by new global risks, including Israel's war against Hamas. Austin traveled by train to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and he praised Ukraine's progress in its effort to stem Russia's invasion. Since my previous visit to Kiev in April 2022, Ukraine has continued to fight back against Russian aggression. And you have reclaimed more than half of the territory that Putin's forces once occupied. Ukraine's defense minister, meanwhile, announced the U.S. intends to send another $100 million in weapons to Ukraine. Around 700 employees at OpenAI are threatening to quit. It follows a shakeup in leadership there. They're demanding the board resign after CEO Sam Altman was fired and fellow executive Greg Brockman walked out in protest. Microsoft picked up both executives. NPR's Derek Kurzmore. The move comes after OpenAI's board fired company CEO Sam Altman last week. More than two-thirds of the company's employees have written a letter saying Altman needs to be reinstated. And the whole board has to go. Otherwise, they'll walk. They say the board's firing of Altman jeopardized the mission of the company. OpenAI is the leader of the generative AI field. It makes the popular ChatGPT program. Allman has been the face of this burgeoning technology. Under his leadership, the company went from a nonprofit research lab to a lucrative corporation. Derek Kerr, NPR News. This year's White House Christmas tree arrived in a wagon adorned with wreaths and red bows today. A military band greeting the wagon pulled by two Clydesdale horses. They were welcomed by First Lady Jill Biden. The 18 and a half-foot-high Fraser fir from North Carolina will be displayed in the blue room of the White House. Stocks gained ground to start the trading week. The Dow was up more than 200 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Police are forming a new unit to fight hate crimes. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the initiative comes amidst a significant uptick in hate speech and hate crimes in the state. State data show reports of hate crimes were up 8% last year. That's the highest level since 2002. The state police are forming a new hate crimes awareness and response team to better respond to hate speech and violence. Governor Maura Healy says her administration is also giving out half a million dollars in grants for programming in schools. My focus right now is on addressing the now and what is, and what is the most unfortunate escalation that we have seen of hate incidents and conduct in this state and around this country. The Anti-Defamation League says reports of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are rising amidst the Israel-Hamas war. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Homeless shelters for adults in Massachusetts are on the brink of a crisis. Advocates say there are more people who need beds in Boston shelters than there are beds, 20 percent more. And that's before the coldest weather even hits. Jerry Thomas of the Boston Public Health Commission says the agency's mission is to take in everyone who comes to its two shelters, but that's tough. If someone shows up, we do not turn them away. But we also don't want, you know, this town's police dropping people off here or there, which does happen because those towns aren't taking, this is a very nice way to put it, not really taking care of their people. Homeless advocates say there's also been a sharp rise around the state in people sleeping outside. The New Hampshire primary is just nine weeks away, and Republican candidate Nikki Haley is urging Granite State voters to back her bid for the presidential nomination. Today in New Hampshire, the former U.N. ambassador under Donald Trump said Trump is no longer suited to lead the country. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has more. 
Nikki Haley has climbed into second place, but is still far behind Trump, according to recent polls. Haley has been threading a needle, appealing to moderates while trying not to alienate hardcore supporters of the former president, a sometimes difficult dance. As she campaigned and hooks it on Monday, Haley repeated her line that Trump was the right president at the right time. But the reality is chaos follows him. And when we've got an economy out of control and we've got wars around the world, we can't afford any more chaos. Trump, who faces 91 criminal charges across multiple cases, says if re-elected, he'd weaponize the Justice Department to go after his political opponents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks in Manchester, New Hampshire. Political strategist John Walsh has died. Walsh died of stomach cancer earlier today. He helped steer Deval Patrick's campaign to win the governorship in 2006. Patrick became the first black governor in the state. John Walsh also served as the state's Democratic Party chair. He was 65 years old. In the forecast, bundle up tonight. It's likely to fall to the low 20s. Tomorrow, around 40 again. Clouds collecting during the day. Wednesday, rainy, windy, a little bit warmer. Should break 50. Partly sunny skies right now for Thanksgiving Day. This is WBUR at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's one thing to have laws and another to enforce them. Today, a federal appeals court struck down a key path for enforcing the Voting Rights Act. The dispute has to do with who has the right to sue in order to enforce protections in that landmark law. In the end, this lawsuit could end up making it harder to fight racial discrimination in voting. NPR's Hansi Luang has been tracking this case. Hi. Hi, Juana. Okay, get us up to speed here. In the past, how has the Voting Rights Act been enforced? Well, there's been two ways of enforcing protections for people of color under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Either the Justice Department can sue on behalf of the federal government or private individuals and groups who do not represent the government can sue. Okay, and is one way more common than the other way? Yes, the majority of cases are brought by individuals and groups, not the Justice Department. And that's what happened in this redistricting lawsuit out of Arkansas that this appeals court panel ruled on today. Groups representing black voters in Arkansas sued. They challenged Arkansas state legislative map and argued it was drawn in a way that dilutes the collective voting power of black voters in the state. And a lower court judge said these groups have a strong case, but the judge ultimately threw out the case because the judge said these groups do not have a right to sue. And why is that? Why did the judge say that? Well, this judge is U.S. District Judge Lee Rudofsky, was appointed by former President Donald Trump. And Rudofsky said the actual words of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act do not explicitly say that private individuals can bring lawsuits and that only the head of the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney General, who's named in the law, can sue. And, you know, what's remarkable is that until this case, no judges have used this argument to dismiss voting rights cases. And back in 1982, when Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, there were reports from House and Senate committees that said private individuals have the right to sue. And legal scholars I've talked to say this has never been a real question before. Okay, help us understand the implications here. How could all of this make it harder to fight racial discrimination in voting? If private individuals and groups are not allowed to sue, that means it'll be up to only the Justice Department to enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. 
And a change in presidential administration could change the level of priority for these types of cases. And, you know, I think we have to remember that Section 2 is one of the few remaining sections of the Voting Rights Act that have survived after a decade of Supreme Court rulings that have weakened other key parts of this landmark law. That's right. And this ruling out today, it's from a federal appeals court. But I would have to imagine this will not be the final word on this question, right? It likely won't be. I'm watching to see if attorneys ask the full Eighth Circuit, uh, all the judges to review today's ruling. And, you know, of course, it's likely that whatever the full Eighth Circuit rules on gets kicked up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, it's really important to, I think, to, to also point out that one particular Supreme Court justice a couple years ago mentioned this issue in a paragraph that was tacked onto a major ruling. This is Justice Neil Gorsuch. And many court watchers saw it as a signal that Gorsuch is interested in having the Supreme Court weigh in on this issue. NPR's Hansi Luong, thank you. You're very welcome, Juana. Argentina has one of the highest inflation rates in the world, and expectations are high among Argentinians that their new president-elect will bring rates down. Javier Millet won yesterday's presidential election, beating the current ruling party's candidate by 11 points. He's an ultra-conservative economist who promises that libertarian principles will solve the country's dire economic state. He's vowed to replace the country's currency with the U.S. dollar and slash all state spending. But as NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, it is unclear when and if he can make such radical changes. Javier Millet got little rest after celebrating his landslide victory last night. Early this morning, he was on local radio. Los tres derechos no negociables bajo ningún punto de vista es el derecho a la vida, la libertad y a la propiedad. The three rights that are under no circumstances negotiable are the right to life, liberty, and private property, told the local host. To say Millet's meteoric political rise has shocked Argentina is an understatement. Just a few years ago, the 53-year-old conservative economist with a messy mop of hair and long sideburns wasn't even in politics. He was better known as a TV pundit whose expletive laced rants grabbed headlines and ratings. Sorpresivo. Hubo momentos que lo esperaba y a veces no, pero bien, ahora contento. It is surprising, says Leon Lemos, who was walking downtown on his way to work where he manages a bar. He says at one point he didn't think it could happen, but he's so glad Millet, who's not part of Argentina's establishment, won. Political forces left and right in Argentina have failed to fix the economy, which has spent more years in recession lately than not. Que el resto de los políticos no es tan claro y que te dice más o menos qué va a hacer con las cosas, pero él no. Other politicians aren't clear about what they're going to do, but Lemos says Millet is. First up, replacing the Argentine peso with the dollar. And Millet says he'll get rid of the central bank, the main driver of inflation, according to him, because of its indiscriminate printing of money. It's unclear, though, whether Millet can do both. As the metal gates go up and doors open to downtown businesses this morning, dozens of informal dollar changers shout to passersby. Cambio, cambio. Cambio, cambio. This black market exchange is a good indicator of the state of Argentina's economy. Today, though, is a national holiday, and the exchange rate of last Friday is still in effect, about 1,000 pesos for one U.S. dollar. A year ago, it was less than 300. Dollarizing the economy won't be easy. Necesitaría una, una flexibilidad que mi ley no tiene. 
Marcos Novaro, a professor at the University of Buenos Aires, says politically, Malay will need congressional support to ditch the peso. He'll need to compromise. His upstart far-right party, though, has few seats in Congress, and Navarro says flexibility isn't Malay's strong suit. Si él no se modera, yo creo que va a fracasar y probablemente tengamos en algún momento una crisis institucional seria. If he doesn't temper his plans a bit, I think he will fail and we will find ourselves in a very serious crisis, says Novaro. Beside politics, economists warn dollarization isn't easy, especially since Argentina doesn't have a large reserve of foreign currency to buy up people's savings in pesos. At last night's victory party in downtown Buenos Aires, Millet supporters stretch for blocks. 23-year-old Joanna Belén traveled more than two hours to come celebrate. She said she's been thinking of leaving Argentina since making a living here is too hard. She said now she's staying put and is much more hopeful, with Millet taking over the presidency. He assumes power on December 10th. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Buenos Aires. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, family food and holidays. But really, I'm talking about the moment NPR launches our annual Books We Love guide. Whether you are adding to your own to-be-read stack or looking for gifts to give, we have more than 350 book recommendations. You can view them all online starting today. And to guide us through this massive pile, NPR's Andrew Limbong is here. He's part of our culture team and host of the NPR Book of the Day podcast. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Ari. This is so much more than a top 10 list, but it's not exactly an exhaustive list. So (laughs) what is it? Yeah, it's just, you know, to put it bluntly, it's a collection of all our favorite reads. You know, early in the autumn, we send out a call out to all of our reporters and critics and stuff like that. And we just compile this massive list of all of their different tastes and all of their, you know, best reads. And, and and what it is, it's like a democratic approach to the best of list. You know, like you said, it's 350 books. Uh, that's a massive list. We've got these filters to help you winnow it down. And I think it's a pretty good guarantee that you'll find the right book for either you or your loved one. It's great because it's not just capital I important books. There's children's books, there's cookbooks, there's romance yeah. and science fiction. Like, Tell us how these filters work. All right. And so let's see. Like For me personally, let's just do a, a live demo here. I like um, seriously great writing. Uh, I like that tag because it's one where the authors really like flex their chops and stuff like that. Um, another popular tag is uh, staff picks. So we got those two going together. Um, and then let's do uh, for history lovers. And so, you know, with that, we get a couple different options. Um, one looks like a nonfiction book called There Will Be Fire by Rory Carroll, uh, which is about the attempts to assassinate Margaret Thatcher during the Troubles. Um, but another is actually um, Justin Torres' Blackouts. Which oh, you wrote yes, about, think, my right? pick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he just won the uh, National Book Award for fiction. So, yeah, totally. shout out to Justin Torres. Yes, yeah. it was a book that I wanted to read again as soon as I finished reading it the first time. Uh-huh. Okay, so when you look over this full list, are there any major trends that jumped out to you? Yeah, there's a really interesting, there's some really interesting books uh, looking at the culture that we consume and really like poking at some questions, including like the one about like representation. Um, So there's a book called Broadway Bodies by Ryan Donovan, which is an examination of, you know, literally the types of body shapes and sizes and abilities that get cast in theater. Um, the other one I want to shout out is uh, was recommended by Pop Culture Happy Hour co-host Glenn Weldon. It's called uh, Hi Honey, I'm Homo by Matt Baum. And it uses like the TV sitcom to examine current day uh, queer politics and history. Hmm. What about books on the kids list? Yeah, there's two I want to shout out here. Uh, one being Big by Vashti Harrison. Uh, it's this beautifully illustrated book about size and acceptance. 
Um, and there's another really fun one titled uh, Mexi Kid. It's a graphic novel by Pedro Martin. Um, it's about a Mexican-American boy who goes on like this family road trip to Mexico to pick up his grandfather. And, you, you know, as adults, we can point to it being like, oh, it's a tender look at family and immigration and roots and all that. But, you know, there's enough like potty humor <laughs> for, for, for kids to really get into it. That's NPR's Andrew Limbong. Just scratching the surface of books we love, you can explore the whole list at NPR.org. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes. This year, Mexico replaced China as the top trading partner to the U.S. As trade between the U.S. and Mexico ramps up, the industrial real estate market at the U.S. southern border has taken off. Business news on Marketplace starts at 6.30. A short week on Wall Street began with an upswing today. The Dow rose nearly six-tenths of a percent. S&P pulled in about three-quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq gained more than one-and-a-tenth percent. The average cost of gasoline in the state continues to drop even as we head into the Thanksgiving Day holiday. AAA Northeast says the average price is down four cents from last week to 3.42 a gallon. That's 39 cents lower than this time last year. AAA attributes the declining prices to maintenance at key oil refineries that service New England. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. There's nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live on the road, on a walk, or in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. It's 621. WBUR supporters include Volante Farms in Needham where the greenhouse is open with poinsettias, greens, and the Trimetry Holiday Shop. Christmas trees for sale Friday. Hours at volantefarms.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We've been hearing for months about the crisis in Massachusetts' shelter system for families who are homeless. Thousands of families are staying in hotels and motels the state's using as extra shelter space. Those who couldn't get a room are on a wait list. But shelters that serve individual adults are also on the brink of crisis. They're running out of space, and people who operate them are sounding the alarm about the upcoming winter. WBR's Lynn Jolliker has been looking into this. What is, Lynn, the situation at the adult emergency shelters right now? Well, these shelters typically do fill up in the fall as winter approaches, but this year it happened earlier than normal and at much larger numbers than is typical, according to advocates. They say, for example, Boston shelters are 20 percent over capacity, and they have been for a while now this fall. And they say this is the worst they've seen the situation leading into the winter for years, maybe even decades. So they've written a letter to Governor Healy asking for the state to set up some large overflow shelter sites 
for example, at military installations and places like that, sites that can serve all ages, from young adults to older adults to families. But these are all individuals as opposed to the family shelters that we've been talking about. Yes. The family shelter system really is a system. It's overseen by the state. But adult shelters are run by nonprofits, sometimes a public agency. They receive state funding, but they are not overseen by the state. So you visited some of the adult shelters recently. What did you see? Yes, I went to Pine Street Inn in Boston last week. I went to the men's shelter. It was dinner time. There were a few dozen men eating in the shelter's dining room. And then down the hall, dozens of men were gathered talking and playing cards in a big room. It was packed and really busy. Here's what it sounded like. Hey, somebody just walked away with my coat, right? And that space would, over the course of the next few hours, get converted into overflow shelter space for the night. When I was there, there were cots and mats lined up along the wall. I spoke with the president and executive director of Pine Street Inn, Lindia Downey, and she told me they've also been opening the dining room as a warming center overnight. And Downey said she has one big question about the shelter's capacity that's eating away at her as winter approaches. Are we going to have enough to meet the demand? We're worried about it. You know, we normally are not having, putting these beds up or opening our warming center. You know, sometimes it's even been into December. The fact that we, you know, in October had to start bringing these beds up, it means we will have to add more capacity as the weather gets colder. And I got some data from Pine Street Inn that show the population of the shelter every night this year in October and last year. And each night this year, there were 75 to 100 more men in the shelter than last October and about 10 more women. And were you able to speak to any of those guests at the Pine Street Inn? Yes. One of them I spoke to is Charles Christian. He's 38 years old. He grew up in Haverhill. And he worked for the last few years as a machine operator in Central Mass., He says he had never been homeless until things fell apart for him financially earlier this year. Well, I lost my job, and I was paying $1,100 for rent plus my utilities, and and then I had credit cards, and I had my car payments, so it kind of got, like, you know, backed up, and it got overwhelming. Christian says when this all happened, he Googled homeless shelters and found Pine Street Inn and called them about a month ago. I asked if he was told he could get a bed. Well, it was more like we have a warming center and you could sleep in a chair. I couldn't sleep in a chair, so like other people, it gets uncomfortable, but they don't have enough mattresses or blankets, so I was literally sleeping on the floor. And what about now? Um, I'm, in, I'm in a dorm right now. I'm in a bed. God willing, God, thank, thank you, you know. Is this sharp rise in adult homelessness being driven by the influx of migrants to the state, such as the case with the the family homelessness crisis? Partly. Uh, I did speak to shelter providers over the course of the last few months, and they said they were seeing more migrants starting to come in. But the numbers really didn't tick up until about September. And some of them are saying that maybe because families were starting to split up because the family shelters were filling up. But in addition to that, social service agencies and government officials say the severe shortage of affordable housing, high rents, and the end of pandemic-era support programs like eviction moratoriums and stimulus checks have contributed to this rise in homelessness. Are there other signs of an overall increase in homelessness among individual adults? Yes, actually, more people staying on the streets, unsheltered. 
the Massachusetts Housing and Shelter Alliance is an advocacy and policy organization, and they say encampments are appearing or growing even in communities that haven't experienced much unsheltered homelessness before. That's happening from small cities on the North Shore to small towns in Worcester County. John Yaswinski is the president and CEO of Father Bills and Mainspring. That's a shelter and permanent supportive housing organization on the South Shore. I met Yaswinski at the organization's new Quincy shelter and housing facility. That place is overflowing. And this is happening as they're trying to bring more people indoors. What we've seen is a 40% increase of unsheltered homeless people sleeping outside in our region in Quincy, Weymouth, Brockton, Plymouth, Wareham. That's the number we're worried about, whereas we're already in overflow, seeing people that we don't have enough beds, people are sleeping on the floor. What happens as we progress where we don't want to turn anybody away? You mentioned that advocates are calling on the state to do something soon. How's the state responding? Well, the state's executive office of housing and livable communities tells me that just over 600 additional beds for winter are either already online or will be coming online in the next several weeks. That typically does happen to some degree, that uh, cities or shelters or churches bring on extra beds for winter, and the state does provide some funding to help with that. The governor's office and the Office of Housing did not answer my questions yet as to whether the state will bring on any large overflow shelter sites, such as at a military base, to help all populations. WBR's Lynn Jolliker, thanks so much. You're welcome, Lisa. The World Health Organization says 28 premature babies have been evacuated to Egypt from Gaza. They had survived for days outside incubators in Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza when the hospital was without power and then besieged by Israeli troops. Israel says Hamas uses the hospital for cover. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anna Spaba, met the mother of two of those babies as she waited by an ambulance to leave Gaza with her daughters. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports. Noor al-Banna's twin daughters, Lean and Bayan, were born prematurely three days before the Israeli offensive on Gaza began. They were transferred without her to Gaza's biggest hospital, Al-Shifa, and Banna tells NPR producer Anas Baba when the airstrikes began, she wasn't able to reach them. By that time, Israel had Gaza under blockade during the offensive, it says, is aimed at preventing Hamas from committing more attacks like the one on October 7th and rescue hostages. With fuel and power shortages, the hospital incubators and ventilators stopped working, and the Gaza Ministry of Health says in the days before the babies could be reached, eight died. Banna says she didn't know if her daughters were still alive. But then she recognized them in a video sent out by a nurse and she was able to reunite with them today. She sat in an ambulance beside her baby girls who were all bundled under blankets and in blue fleece hats about to cross to Egypt. NPR producer Anas Baba was there. So she told me that this is the first time to see them. I want to hug them. I want to kiss them. I, I, I want to like truly cuddle them tightly. But I cannot, I cannot even touch them because they, I do believe this is going to be like unhygienic and maybe that's going to give them any disease. He says the most she could do was put out her finger when one of the babies raised her hand and held on to it tightly. It was phenomenal, the look on her face. It just like the mother that finally became a 100% mom with the touch of her child. 
There were four other premature babies in the ambulance, and Banna said she will help care for them too. Only a few mothers were with the 28 babies sent to Egypt today, with medics still trying to reach some of the parents, or even find out if they're still alive. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. And this is NPR News.